Morning. Morning. My name is Pastor Daniel. I'm uh, one of the lead pastors here, and um, Karen is awesome. I just want to let you know, uh, if I make any more Karen jokes, they're not about our Karen. Uh, I already owe money from the first service for Karen jokes, so I'm going to try to stay away from them. Uh, We're in a a series called Antidote for Self, which is about humility, and uh, the premise of that is that we're our own worst enemy, amen? And so we need an antidote for self, which is uh, what is in the scripture. And so last week, we talked about uh, us and the cross. And, and, and so just, uh, so I can catch you up if you, you missed last week. Um, what we're really looking at last week was what I deserve and, and the fact that I didn't get what I deserved. And that's actually a good thing, Amen. Uh, we call that mercy, by the way, if you're looking for a theological definition of when you deserve way worse than you got, but you got better than, than what you deserved, we call that mercy, right? Uh, we deserve punishment, we didn't get it, thank God. And, and the theme of last week was this idea that as Americans particularly, we're consumed with this idea of equality, of equity, of fairness, but we really don't want fairness. If we understand scripture and we understand God, we don't want fairness because if we got fairness, if we got what we deserved, it would not be a very good thing. Amen? This week, we're going to talk about not what I deserved, but we're going to talk about what we received at the moment of salvation. We're going to talk a lot about the gospel. I'm going to define the gospel in just a minute so that we're working on the same page. Uh, But in theological terms, when we talk about what we received, which is far greater than what we deserve, uh, that actually is a word called grace, grace or unmerited grace. Mercy is not getting what we deserve because it was punishment. Grace is getting way more than we should get. And so we're talking a lot about grace today, and I'm going to reference this word that may be unfamiliar for you if you're not a a churchgoer. It's called the gospel. It's not a type of music, um, but I'm going to reference it about 547 times today. And so I figured it'd be important for us to be on the same page as to the definition that I'm working with for the gospel because I'm just gonna say it over and over and over again, and I wanna make sure we're on the same page. Does that make sense? Okay. You're with me, right? You guys are the late service. You should be awake by now. (laughs) Just a side note, I know it's football season. If you have ever in your life raised both hands when someone scored a touchdown, and at that very moment you were not in the position of referee, (laughs) then you understand what it's like to celebrate, amen? So when we come and gather together to encourage one another with the proclamation of the word, it's our job to do so to the praise and glory of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That means you should not be embarrassed to raise a hand, to raise a hallelujah, to raise an amen. Amen? Because if you're embarrassed here, but you're not on the football field, I'm just going to submit to you, we got some priorities messed up. That's an I word called idolatry, and we'll get into that later. Okay. Sorry, I'm meddling, I'm meddling. Let's talk about the gospel. The book that we're reading right now, called Humility, uh, we're reading this in small groups, a six chapter book, it's very small, it doesn't have any pictures, but it's not very complex, so you're gonna love it. We'll say that the gospel is the only source of true humility, meaning that all humility not born of the gospel is actually false humility. It's not actually real, which is interesting. You may or may not agree with it, but it's in the book. Now, the book is gonna have a bunch of good stuff. If you're not reading the book, make sure you get out to Karen after the service and talk to her about getting into a group somewhere so you can get a copy of this book and read this with us. Um, and it's just, it's tremendous. Those of you that have already read chapter one with us, I mean, there's some, there's some stuff in chapter one that we're still kind of dealing with. Like, It talks about how humility shouldn't be a burden. It shouldn't actually be very heavy, but it should be the opposite. It should should lighten us. It should be, humility is actually joy. It should be normalizing. It should be like oxygen. And if it doesn't feel that way, then we actually have some stuff to work on when it comes to humility. All right, anyways, you read the book. I'm not the author. So let's talk about the gospel. Real quickly, when I say the gospel, what I mean is this. 
all the way back when God created Adam and Eve and, and, and the heavens and the earth and everything else and, the gar- and they were walking with God in the Garden of Eden. Everything was perfect. There was no death. There was no sin. There was no destruction. There was no evil. Everything was great. They're just strolling around naked, riding around on horses and whatever else they did. Things are perfect. The Bible describes that with a Hebrew word shalom, peace, perfect, perfection. Everything was great. And then they sinned. When they sinned, they brought disobedience, opposite of God's character, into the world. When they brought sin into the world, they brought death into the world. Death is a byproduct of sin. And since that moment, they've passed that down generation by generation. And you and I, regardless of your family tree and your background, the ethnicity you like to claim came from Adam and Eve. Therefore, you and I were born into sin, according to Scripture. And so generation after generation after generation, for millennia now, we have watched evil and destruction wreak chaos on humanity to highlight the fact that we were in need of divine intervention. That divine intervention came in the form of God sending his son to become a man, we call that the incarnation, be born of a woman, live a perfect life, the perfect life that you and I could never live, then die on a cross the death that you and I should have died in order to receive the penalty for our sins so that the Bible would say that if we would confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is the Lord, we would be saved. What does saved means? It means no longer would we have the penalty of our sin. Plus, we would receive the rewards that were due to him, and we would get those even though we didn't earn them, meaning we would now have right standing before God. We would restore relationship with the Lord, and we would have eternity with him forever. Amen? It's the gospel. So when I say gospel, two syllables, six letters, I mean a lot because that's what's in here. Now, here's the thing about the gospel. I I believe that no matter how high of a view you have of the gospel, how much you think the gospel is a good thing, how much you think it's powerful, whatever you think about it, no matter how high of a view you have of the gospel, you're underestimating it. It's better than you think it is. It's more powerful than you're giving it credit for. So even if you're like, man, I really love the guy. I think it's great, great. You're still underestimating it because we can't, we live in finite terms and, and God is an infinite God. The gospel is greater and more powerful than you think it is. Therefore, you're underestimating it. Say, I'm underestimating it. It's more. And I want you to see that it's more. I'm gonna point out that it's more. And I want you to live like it's more. So here we go. We're going to be in Romans 5, primarily in verse 20 for the whole sermon. Romans 5, 20, tackling an entire verse, just, just one verse. Now, for the last three chapters, from Romans uh, 3, 4, 5, roughly, Paul has been making this really long and complex argument, primarily to um, people that were kind of stuck on the Mosaic Law, stuck on the, the Ten Commandments and the Hebrew Law, and he's been making a long argument essentially to say that the law can't save you, that following the Ten Commandments can't save you. And he's going to summarize this, this long argument right here at the end of Romans 5 with this verse. Now the law came, this is Romans 5.20, now the law came to increase the trespass. You could also read that as the law came, so the Ten Commandments came to increase sin, If that sounds weird, good, you're paying attention. Because it is weird. The law came to increase sin. That makes no sense. Wait, God's perfect law came to increase sin. I, all right. But, thankfully there's a but, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Grace abounded all the more. Now, Why in the world would we say, why would Paul say that God's holy, perfect law came to increase sin? Well, let's think about this. Um, Go back to the Garden of Eden. What was was that original sin? Somebody. They ate from a tree they they weren't supposed to eat from. You you guys do remember this, right? Somebody has seen this on a felt board at some point in their life? Okay. If it's not on a felt board, I don't know if I can trust it. Okay, They ate from a tree they weren't supposed to eat from. Now, you ever wonder what would happen if God hadn't told them that there was a tree they couldn't eat from? Look, I mean, there was a ton of trees. 
You know, it's possible that if he hadn't said anything, they might not have ever ate from him in the first place. But the moment he said, don't eat from it, all of a sudden it became a problem. Okay, let me put it this way. Have you ever not even cared about something and then someone told you you couldn't do it and suddenly you wanted to do it? No? No, it's just me? It's just me. You guys are liars. No! There's a thing and you don't even care about it. Then someone's like, you're not allowed to do that. And you're like, oh, really? (laughs) The, The law appeared. There was one rule and they broke it, right? <laughs> the law appeared and all of a sudden that was a problem. It gets worse because um, humanity, after the garden, if you know anything about the Old Testament, immediately devolves into depravity. I mean, it's so horrible and it's so awful that God, by, I mean, we're still in Genesis, right? We're still in the very beginning. God wipes the entire earth out, but for like eight people and some animals. Remember that soft, lovely, lighthearted story of Noah's Ark? the one you like to tell your kids before they go to bed. And then God will kill everyone. No, nobody? Okay, fine, whatever. I mean, it did not take that many generations. God's killed everyone on earth because they're that evil and starts again. And what happens? They immediately go back to evil, but it gets worse than that when he gives them the 10 commandments. The 10 commandments, can we be honest? The 10 commandments aren't very hard. Please don't murder. Sorry, couldn't help you, God. Like, like What? When God gives the Israelites the Ten Commandments, the rules of what to do and what not to do, sin gets worse. People get worse because they know what to do and they know what not to do and they do it all anyways. So the law comes and it increases sin because it highlights what holiness is supposed to look like and what that actually does when compared to you and I, it shows us that we're actually pretty evil. And what Paul says is actually, the law came and increased sin, but where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more. Now, in Greek, what you can't see here, because we've translated this to English, is the word that is used right there is a made-up word. It doesn't exist in the Greek language, not even in ancient Greek. Paul made it up. Paul loves to make up words, by the way. The word would best be translated superabounded. Grace superabounded. So if you're in your Bible, in the margins, in Romans 5.20, over on the side, you put superabounded, because it sounds so much cooler than the way they translated it. Superabounded. If you ever get stuck, by the way, on, on the idea of like, wait, wait a second, and if you've thought about this, it, 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 it could stop you for a minute. It's a bit of a paradox. Why in the world would God's perfect law, why would he even give us perfect law if he knew it was gonna make us sin more? Why would God give us the Ten Commandments if we knew sin was gonna abound? Why, why in the world would God want sin to abound? Um, let me give you the, maybe the best imperfect analogy I can give you for that. Uh, and and it, maybe it'll make sense. There's an urban legend, and it's not actually been proven, that Kobe Bryant, when he was in high school at Lower Marion High, used to purposefully not shoot for the first two or three quarters of the game so that his team would fall behind and be losing so that he could come back and score 40 in the fourth quarter and be the hero. And no one actually ever proved that, but it happened a lot. And he was obviously a a Hall of Fame career and everything else, but he liked to be the hero. So he would actually let the team realize how bad they were without him. And then he would score a bunch of buckets and they'd win. And in some sense, that's a little bit of the history of what God has done in the Old Testament is he allowed thousands of years for us to realize that no matter what culture, what civilization, whether they had kings or rulers or judges, uh, whether it was in Asia, whether it was in the Middle East, whether it was the Roman Empire, didn't matter the civilization, didn't matter the technological advancements, didn't matter the culture, the government style, we were hopeless. You could try all these different things and none of them worked for thousands of years so that no one ever in the history of humanity could go, you know, we probably would have figured it out given enough time. No, didn't matter what happened. Horrible, we needed his intervention. I want to talk about in this sermon today how the gospel is deeper and greater and more powerful than you and I believe as an ongoing 
change agent, meaning as a thing that was not a one-time event that happened at the point that Jesus saved you, but as the thing that we wake up to every single day and continues to change us, change others, and change the world. Um, and my best example of that, and again, we've put um, some, some distortions to this in, in American Christianity where we act like it's a one-time event. But let me tell you, it's not a one-time event. Um, not only because the Bible says it's not, but even just logically if you think about this, if when God saved me, he pulled me out of the mud, he pulled me out of my filth, out of the pigsty of my sin and my depravity, and he cleaned me and cleansed me with the word, and he put his spirit in me, and he, and he, and he clothed me in his righteousness and all of the royal garb and the, and the white linens and all of just the glory of his righteousness, which he says that he does, and he put the ring on my finger, and he sealed me for the day of redemption, and, and he called me his son, and now I'm, I'm the son of a king. If he did all those things and said, all right, man, um, you look great, don't get it dirty. And he left. I, I wouldn't have made it through the day. I'd have been like, oh, I was eating a burrito and I already spilled on it. And they don't have those cool pins. Like, I'm in trouble. He didn't just save me and then go, now, do your best to live morally and you'll be okay as long as you live good. And like, I'm in trouble. I would not have made it 24 hours without sinning again, probably a lot. And if you believe you would have, I have news for you. You either. So the gospel's not a one-time event. He didn't just save me that one time and then say, do your best effort. He saved me, and then he continues to save me, and I continue to work my best of working out my salvation with fear and trembling because, man, I realize that even after he saved me, there's a long way to go, amen? And if any of you have met me, you know there's a long way to go. See, someone's met me. First point of three. The power of the gospel to change me. The power of the gospel to change me. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The power of the gospel to change me starts by allowing me to clearly see myself without all the distortion, clearly see who I am, how depraved I am, how hopeless I am, how useless I am, how sinful I am, and not be overwhelmed with grief. Because if humility is about right perspective, about clearly being able to see who I am and who God is, then a clear view of me is actually pretty terrifying. Romans 1, 16-32, talks about the human condition. The human condition. Who you and I are apart from God. Every person, universal, not in a vacuum, this is me. Say me. All right, here we go. Here's Paul explaining this. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for it is written, for it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invincible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. What is that saying? It's saying, listen, since the beginning of creation, you and I could look at the world and look at creation and look at nature and look at the stars and look at the universe and go, man, we didn't create that. Clearly there's some higher power. So we know there's a God, and if you're denying that, you're without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
Every human in the history of mankind has found something to worship other than God and it was a thing that God actually created. So we were literally worshiping the very thing he created over the person that cre- or the God that created it in the first place. What is the definition of idolatry? Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God allowed you and I to chase sin. And watch what happens. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28, and since they did not fit, see fit to acknowledge God, yet gave them up to a debased mind to, what, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Nothing like a lighthearted sermon on a Sunday morning, right? Though they knew God's righteous decree, though we knew the law, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, the power of the gospel, first and foremost, is it gives me the ability to see that this is me, not someone else. Before God saves me, I think he's talking about someone else. I think I'm actually okay. I think I'm a pretty good guy. And the reason I think I'm a pretty good guy before God saves me is that I can always look and find somebody else that I think is a little bit worse than me. And if he's a little bit worse than me, then I gotta be okay, right? So as long as I can find somebody else, I can go, man, they're pretty evil. So that means I must be okay. Things are gonna kind of balance out for me. I'm good. It's when God saves you that you begin to get an undistorted view, an unfiltered view of your heart and how depraved you are. And it's at that point I begin to accept that this is talking about me. And listen, this is a challenge. This is one of the signs that you're not saved is you don't think that's you. When I'm walking with, with young men and I'm working with them and, I, and, I, and we're, you know, we're really working on it, do they know Jesus? I mean, do they really know him? This is kind of one of the signs that they don't. When, when, when I'm dealing with people that don't think this is them, like, ah, I'm kind of okay. I'm like, oh boy, oh man, you're spiritually dead still. You don't see it. But once I accept it, once I, once I've been, once I see it, once God has enabled me to see it, he's raised me up out of the grave. Here's the problem. If you get a a clear glimpse of this, it is crippling on its own. Like this is so, it it is so shameful to realize who I am at at my core because I'm the murderer. That's what this is saying. I'm the child molester. I'm the cheater. I'm the tyrant. I'm the addict. I'm the adulterer. I'm the liar. It's me. And that's crushing in its shame. Because left there without anything else, I'm worthless. I I deserve hell and I should go there now. There's no hope. This is the the tension that if humility is right perspective and I actually get the right perspective, then, then it's depressing. All of my deepest, darkest concerns about my own inadequacies are actually true. All of those secret concerns that I'm worthless and I'm hopeless and, and I'm unlovable are true. That's just, that's despair. Why go on? This is the power of the gospel because the gospel says where sin increased, grace superabounds. So the better view I get of myself, the better I can appreciate how good God is to love me in this state. So what starts with a better view of myself, which would be terrible on its own, leads to an even better perspective of God. It begins to change my perspective of who God is. Uh, Second point is this. It shifts my view of God from authoritarian to loving and tender. So we've all met somebody, and maybe we've done this ourselves, who says, man, I don't really like the Old Testament God because he seemed a lot about like, like justice and killing people. Um, I really like the New Testament God who's loving. Like I like to imagine my Jesus is kind of like a hippie with a guitar who just walks around singing Kumbaya and everything's cool, okay, sarah, sarah. Nobody? Nobody's ever met that person? Man, y'all. The problem is that the Old Testament God is the New Testament God. There's no difference between God and the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
Why did God seem so harsh in the Old Testament and so loving in the New Testament? Because now there was a way to save us. When my perspective begins to change about God from authoritarian, like he's just this sort of mean God that wants to penalize me and that demands obedience, to loving, it is a sign that the gospel is doing work in me because I see that I actually deserve hell and I see that I'm receiving something different and that changes my perspective of who God is. And that is critical to love God. But where sin increased, grace superabounded. As I get a picture of my sin, I get a picture of God that is so much greater than I thought it was. And you begin to ask this question, and there's so many ways to ask this question. How could God love me? As in like, how could God love me? How could God love me? How could God of perfect justice, of holy character, love me? How could God love, just love me? How could God love me of all people? The gospel is like this jewel that has been cut by a, 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 in such a way that every time you turn it and look at it from a different angle, it's more and more captivating and beautiful. Let, let me see if I can explain how this perspective of you leads to this perspective change to God. Um, we talk about God a lot in terms of his attributes, in terms that we actually can't comprehend. So, so we talk about uh, God's love being an infinite love his power being an infinite power, except, I, I don't know, I, my 10-year-old son, he's a wonderer. Do you, do you know anyone that's a wonderer? They just are randomly thinking about the weirdest of things, and they'll talk about them, and you're just like, what, where are you from? Are you an alien? Like, <laughs> my son will come up to me just out of nowhere and be like, Dad, do you think the dinosaurs had feelings? <laughs> like, what, what? Have you ever tried to wrap your head around infinity? I mean, do you want a headache? Let me ask you this, okay? Um, how, if I wanted to know how fast God was, who, by the way, is infinity fast, how much of a head start would God need to give me in a foot race to see exactly how fast he was? Let me ask it in a different way. Maybe this will make more sense. If God is infinity good, exactly how bad would things have to get so that I could realize how good he was? Do you see it? Because it's what he did. In order to realize how good he was, which is infinite, there's no limit to it. We'll never get there. He allowed us to get worse and things to get worse and things to get worse and things to get worse so that when we saw him, we could realize that the limit of his goodness has no limit. Do, Do you see it? It was for our benefit that he allowed sin to increase so that grace could superabound. So he gives me a view of myself without it crippling me, and it changes my perspective of who he is. He goes from being authoritarian in my mind to being loving and tender because I realize how much he would have had to love me to do this. And the third thing is that what that does is it empowers, it fuels my pursuit of him. So, so we know that to, as God saves us, our job as we're left here on earth is to pursue a relationship with him. Or what he would say uh, in, in Luke 9, 3 is, uh, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross daily and come after me. So it's, so it's our job in the light of what he's done to now Love him, to try to, to try to love him. And in the process of loving him, let him change us. Except that until he's changed our perspective, until we see ourselves and we see him, it's difficult for us to pursue a loving relationship with God. Instead, what a lot of us do, if we've missed that perspective part, is, is we think that the Christian life is one of checking boxes and, 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 and um, adhering to rules, Right? So as long as I'm moral enough, as long as I do just enough, as long as I don't do these bad things and I do some of these good things, I should be okay. That's not the formula. You'll find it nowhere in here. 
The formula is he did everything, you did nothing, and now in light of all that he has done, you get to love him, and in loving him, he changes you. That is very different than I will live a moral life and hope things are okay. And that, that changes things from I want to obey him because I don't want to be punished to I want to please him. He's attractive. Someone that loves you greatly is attractive, amen? Like, like, like hear me. Of all of the things that could be attractive, someone that loves you sacrificially, I mean just would die for you. I don't care what they look like, that's attractive. You want more of that in your life, amen? Like people talking about ride or die, right? Like I want somebody that would die for me, they love me that much. Those aren't the people that I'm not texting back. Only one of you, okay, fine. <laughs> Listen to 1 Peter uh, 1, seven through nine. He's, Peter's explaining this to the early church. He says this, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right, so there's this process of faith, faith as, as Jesus is revealed to me. Verse eight, what happens? Though you have not seen him, you, what's that word? Love him, not I'm afraid of him so I'll obey, not I'm gonna go to church at least two and a half times a month on average. Love him. How do you fall in love with Jesus? Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So what Jesus does as he saves us is he gives us a glimpse of who we are and he gives us, it changes our perspective of who he is so that he's not an authoritarian God that I'm afraid of. We realize the goodness of God to save someone like me and it makes me fall in love with him. And as I fall in love with him, my whole life begins to change because I want to live a life that pleases him. I'm not about following rules. It's not about checking boxes. It's not about I hope that's good enough for you, Lord. It's about I want to please you. Listen, if you think this is a foreign concept, there was a point for most of you where you really wanted to please someone of the opposite sex. We called it dating. And there weren't rules to follow. You just wanted that person to be pleased, amen? And I mean, you put some energy into it, amen? Like you, you investigated what would please that person. And I mean, you were working at it and you, you, you would, whether it was gifts or, 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 or things to honor them or a date night or you dressed a certain way or you finally shaved and brushed your teeth. I don't know what it was, but you did something in hopes that they would be pleased. Because you're falling in love with them. That's what this is describing. This isn't a, it shouldn't be a foreign concept. And so if you're not looking at your, your life with, with the Lord like this, then you're looking at it not the way the Bible is describing it, because the Bible describes it this way. Let, let, me, let me help with this. There's a famous Scottish preacher named Thomas Chalmers, born in 1780. His most famous sermon is called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And his point was, you can't, through um, trying really hard or self-discipline, get rid of sin, Impossible. In fact, he said, you can't even get rid of your own idolatry by trying really hard, no matter what you do. You will always idolize something. Now listen to what he says. This is in his sermon. Seldom do any of our habits or flaws disappear by a process of extinction through reasoning or by mere force of mental determination. So you can't, mm, gonna try really hard, not sin today. Reason and willpower are not enough. But what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. So how do I root out this, this idolatry in my heart? The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. A young man, for example, may cease to idolize pleasure, but it is only because the idol of wealth has now become stronger and gotten the ascendancy and is enabling him to discipline himself for prosperous business. So he traded one idol for another. Even the love of money ceases to have the mastery over the heart if it's drawn into another world of ideology and politics. 
and he is now lorded over by the love of power. He's traded one idol, uh, idol for another. But there is not one of these identity transformations in which the heart is left without an object. Its desire for one particular object may be conquered, but its desire for having some one object of absolute love is inconquerable. Your heart was created to have an idol, something to worship that sits on the throne of your heart. It will, every one of you has a king sitting on the throne of your heart. Say amen. amen. The question is not if you have something there. The question is who sits on it. 1780, I mean, this is what we, we've known this for a long, long time. It is only when admitted into the number of God's children through the faith that is in Christ Jesus that the spirit of adoption is poured out upon us. It is then that the heart brought under the mastery of one great and predominant affection is delivered from the tyranny of its former desires in the only way that deliverance is possible so it isn't enough to hold out a mirror of its imperfections to your soul. It's not enough to just say, here's what's wrong with you. It won't fix you. It's not enough to lecture your conscience. Rather, you must try every legitimate method of finding access to your hearts for the love of him who is greater than the world. Do you hear what he's saying? If you want to be free from the idolatry of your heart, then the thing that has to sit at the center of your heart is him. There's no other way. So it is not necessarily through the elimination of things to get you there. It's through actually putting Jesus on the throne in your heart. Okay. The power of the gospel to change me. Now, the power of the gospel to change you or others. You see, this formula, we, can, we might be able to get ourselves around this idea that God loves me this much um, and that, that I need to pursue and chase after God and that God over time will change me and I'm just gonna have to be patient for myself. But there's this weird thing about human nature that I tend to be far more patient with myself than I am with you. Like I will give myself the 431st chance but if you mess up three times, <laughs> whoa. We, we have this tendency to give ourselves, extend ourselves a lot of grace, but other people, right? The old, uh, the old saying was, uh, grace for me, but not for thee. I want you to hear the Bible talk about one of um, the toughest relationships in life when it comes to our ability to extend grace to others. And I, I wanna extrapolate from this uh, scripture how we're supposed to deal with other people, okay? First Peter 3, one through two says this. <clears throat> this is Apostle Peter giving instructions to a church. He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, now I just consider for a moment what he just said. He said, hey, wives, it may be a situation in which you're married to a man who is not saved or is disobedient to the word of God, okay? Now, if you think the Bible takes that lightly, in another text, it will compare being married to an unbeliever as being married to Satan. Now, some of you feel like you are. <clears throat> Don't say that out loud. <laughs> not positive for your marriage. <clears throat> Just keep that one buried. So the Bible feels very strongly about you voluntarily marrying someone who's not saved. What does light have to do with darkness? What does Christ have to do with Belial? 
Yet, if you found yourself in a situation where you were married to an unbeliever or someone who's disobedient to God, it doesn't say run away and divorce them. It says be subject to them. There's some humility. So that they may be one, they may be saved by your conduct. Now, first thing, you can't change anyone. If you ever want to know how incredibly inept you are to change other people, you should go into ministry. Because, I mean, here's the wonderful thing about ministry. Hey, you're not going to be able to change anyone, but you're responsible for all of them. I don't like that. That's a zero out of ten for me. It's going to be a no for me, dog. What? You can't change anyone. Whereas I like that, I have to tell people, hey, I can't make you love Jesus. If I had a stick to hit you with, that would make you love Jesus, y'all would be sore. But it, it doesn't work. I can't change you. Now, think about what, what this text is saying in 1 Peter. Okay, I want you to, I want you to see this example. If, if there was one place that hopefully you could actually exact some change in someone else, it would be the most intimate relationship in all human relationships, right? It'd be your spouse. You could spend the most time with them. You could be the most intimate. You could be the most vulnerable with them. You could spend all this time and energy and effort and commitment and covenantal relationship. And that person, you can't change. And some of you are like, you're right, I can't. I've been trying. You can't nag them into loving God. Now, now, side note, this is why we tell you before you get married, do not date someone that is not Christian. It's going to lead you to some heartache. Women, if you're not married and you're thinking about marrying, I mean, you know, like, let me change the way you look at Tinder. Don't date boys. You date a boy, you very possibly be married to a boy. Date men. Date men. Men, date someone that loves the Lord. And you don't necessarily end up like, like, this is a tough situation. I'm not trying to make light of being married to someone that is a non-believer. It is hard. And yet the Bible unequivocally says, by the way, don't leave, don't run from that. Submit to them. <sighs> I do not want to do that. I don't want to submit to people I do like. That they might be won by your conduct. Now, now, what is the power of you submitting to them if you can't change them anyways? That's a wonderful question. If I can't exact change in other people, why should I have any confidence that submitting to those people might win them to Christ? Here's why. Here's why. And this is really important because all of your relationships, not just your marriages, all of your relationships, all the people here in church, the ones that you like and the ones you don't like and you don't really, you try to avoid them and sit on the other side of the aisle, don't make eye contact with them right now. It's a bad idea. They might know. But you know what I'm talking about. All of those relationships, the coworker that really bugs you, all of your human relationships are going to be impacted by this truth, and that's this. The Bible says that if you will pursue Jesus, you will pursue this love relationship with Jesus around other people, it will cause you to produce spiritual fruit, one of those being humility, so that you will begin to submit to other people even though they don't deserve it. And that what, that, what happens is that the impact and the power of the gospel is that if other people get to see you supernaturally changing because of the miracle work of the Holy Spirit on your life, there's a potential that they can be saved. You to hear that. You can't change them. But if you can be changed in their presence, they might be changed too. Do you understand the hope in that? Now, that's a hard calling because what it says is you're inept, you can't do anything. But by the way, that's what really everything in the Bible says. But if you will pursue a love relationship with God and they can get a glimpse at how much God is changing you, there's a possibility they can change. Not through your own effort, but through how God changes you. This is why this is about humility. 
Not only could I not save myself and I was dead in my sin and Jesus had to do everything, but also even after I got saved, I'm still incapable of exacting change on any human relationship, even the one I'm most invested in, like my marriage, without the power and the presence of the gospel doing work on me and hopefully spilling over and doing work on others. It's the gospel. The power of the gospel to change me, the power of the gospel to change others, and lastly, the power of the gospel to change the world. Now, um, in Acts 19, uh, there's a whole series uh, tracking through the story of missions, trips, and early churches. And probably one of the wildest chapters in all of the Bible is Acts 19. There's a crazy amount of stuff going on. We're not even going to read the whole thing because I'd have a lot of explaining to do. Um, but there is a temple to the Greek god of Artemis in Ephesus. Um, and it's a major tourist thing. It makes a ton of money. And so what happens is Paul, who's been preaching the gospel all around Macedonia and everywhere else, has preached the gospel so effectively and it's spread like wildfire. And because of it, it's actually had an economic impact. And I want to read this to you. Acts 19, 23 to 29 says this. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. This is the Christianity. They called it the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis. So he made little bobbleheads. They weren't bobble. You know what I'm saying. He made little silver statues of Artemis and sold them who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So he's wealthy. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Witham? Everybody remember Witham from last week? Four of you? I feel really encouraged. What's in it for me? You know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. (gasps) How dare he? Gods made with hands are not gods? How could he say that? I mean, next thing you know, he's going to say that sports aren't that important and that the Constitution's not the Bible. (laughs) 27. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come to disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis might be, may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristocurus and Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So the people who are making money off bobbleheads to the temple start losing a ton of money and there's no demand for little silver bobbleheads of a fake God that were made up by men who they were profiting off of because there were so many people coming to Christ that what had dispossessed their heart instead of a, an idol of Artemis or an idol of Greek gods was the true living God and they were losing money and they were all going to be out of jobs and so they riot. You're like, what does this have to do with us? Let me, let me, let me ask you a question. Um, Perchance, any of you in the last two years heard a news article, a news story about this little word called inflation? Somebody, yeah, you've heard one or two things about that? I would submit to you that over the last couple years, there is a pretty big movement in our country that you should be concerned about this. Like, we need you to be thinking about this. You should be really worried about this inflation. It should, be, it should be consuming your mind and your energy. You should have some anxiety over it. I mean, news is talking about it every day, multiple times a day. There's articles everywhere. They're popping up in your Facebook feed and your social media. It's the, the leading article. We're going to track it with percentiles, and it went up by 0. 0.6. And, and you, oh, you should be super concerned with... An entire economic system changed in a matter of months because the gospel spread. And you're telling me you want me to be worried about your economic system? If I I have 
faith that the gospel can change me, then I also have faith that the gospel can change you. And if I have faith that the gospel can change you and I, then I have faith that the gospel can change anything that I see locally, nationally, globally. That means my hope and my confidence and my energy and my attention, I'm not sitting around worried about who's going to be the next president or who's going to be the next senator, what law is going to be passed or not passed, what program works or doesn't work. I'm actually worried about loving God more and you loving God more and that's spilling over into every corner and avenue and dirty little area of this town. Because I dream of the day when you drive up Manor, up meaning south, which is what we say when we're in Bakersfield, I don't know why. <laughs> when I drive up Manor and it turns into Union and there's no one left standing on those corners in the middle of the night because there's no demand left for prostitution. When porn sites have to shut down because no one wants to traffic them anymore, even if no one's looking when sex trafficking is not a thing because there's no demand for it. You see, what I don't need is another program. What I do need is a change of heart. And I need that change of heart to spill over, over and over again until it is contagious and everyone else catches it and they're ready to riot and the pimps and the sex trade are ready to riot because there's no money left in it. Yeah, drag us into the street if that's a problem because that's a good problem. The dream of the church is not to enact another social program or another system of government or another politician. It's that the revival would break out, that you and I would see God in his greatness and in his glory as someone that's so attractive and then that we would chase after him and we would stop being distracted by other things and that would begin to spill over to such an extent that no one is free from the impact of the gospel. That we would feel about the gospel like we would feel about our football games that it would fire us up that much. And that, you know what I don't lose any sleep over? And I'm not exaggerating. The economy. The, why? Why? You, do you think that fell out of God's control? The gospel is so much more powerful than you think it is. That it could change economic systems. That it could end the types of things that we, we can't, can we be honest, we lost the drug on wars. Uh, the, the war on drugs. No, we lost it. Can we, just, can we just announce that we lost that war? Do you remember the 90s, right? We had a war on drugs. And we had commercials. There was a frying pan with eggs. You guys remember these? <laughs> this is your brain on drugs. You guys remember this, right? Where did you learn this? I learned it from watching you. The war on drugs. We spent all this money. We lost. You know why? We tried to legislate it. We thought it was a program. It could fix this. It's not a program. It's a heart problem. We, we, we thought we could limit the idolatry in our heart. You can't limit the idolatry in the heart. It has to be dispossessed. The answer to all of these things is still the same. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. It's the gospel in me and it's the gospel in you and it's the power of the gospel as that begins to happen to the edges of the earth. So it's the power of gospel to change me. It's the power of the gospel to change you. And it's the power of the gospel to change the world. There's a thread of humility through this whole thing that we must acknowledge that we are incapable of doing any of these things on our own. It's a, it's a perspective change that's both very personal because it's, it's, it's perspective change for me and about myself. But it's also perspective change to the broadest of levels, the global levels. Now, practically... A lot of this is about perspective. Practically, how do, you, how, do you, how do you take this and do something with it? Um, I want to explain this idea of, of dependence, okay? So, so what attempting to get a right view of you and a right view of God and loving him looks like is dependence. And I'll explain how dependence works in that I can't explain how dependence works. That's not going to be helpful. Um, because it's so unique to you in your life. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give you an example from my life this week. And I'm gonna hope that, and I'm gonna ask you actually spend a little bit of time thinking about your, yourself, okay? Um, you need some background. Uh, I never wanted to be a pastor. That didn't work out. Uh, my dad was a pastor. Both of my grandfathers were pastors. So I was pretty certain 
was not going to be a pastor. I did everything possible to not be a pastor. It was like Jonah when he went the opposite way and he just got swallowed by a whale anyways. And so um, I came to faith and I began to serve in ministry and I was like, I'll serve in ministry, but it's, it's not, as long as I'm not a pastor. And then somehow I got like sneakily ninja ordained and I didn't even know about it. And so I was a pastor, but I was like, I'll be a pastor, but I'm just not, I'm not going to preach, man. I don't, man, I don't want to be, I don't want to, I don't want to be up there. I want to do, I have zero desire to preach. And that was working out really good until the senior pastor just up one day and left. And they're like, Hey, um, you're up. I'm like, this is really not working out well. And so, so, so what has occurred in my life in, in this last few years, as I've um, been the primary preaching pastor at this uh, church is a, um, a feeling of inadequacy that is difficult to explain. You see, I, I, I have no formal training. I didn't go to seminary. I didn't go to Bible college. I literally have gone to no training at all to study and, and preach. And yet, um, in my personal walk, I, have, I, I cannot explain to you how high of a regard I have for the word of God and the preaching of the word, which creates a real problem for me is I believe it is, it is a very high calling and, a, and, and should be handled very reverently, which for me logically means I should never do it. Like I'm the last person to pick to do this. And yet God was very clear with me that I would do it. And so each week, um, almost fearfully, I study and I read and I study and I hope, and these are my prayers every week, I hope, that God will remove any element of Daniel when I come up here and, and, and you will get to hear from God. And it is a humbling, terrifying experience because every week I feel like I'm very inadequate and I should not be doing this except I know God wants me to do it. So it's not really that I shouldn't be doing it, but, but I don't want to do it. And I feel like I am, I'm walking a tightrope that I can mess up at any point. Like if you hear from Daniel, we're in trouble. But I gotta be up here for, let's be honest, 55 minutes probably. And so it, 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 it births a dependence on God. Like, like, I mean, I'm searching the scripture and I'm talking to God and I'm just, I'm like, oh, this is so easily gonna go wrong. And this week um, I'm studying and, and I'm studying Romans 5.20. And I open up a, a commentary from Kent Hughes, a phenomenal theologian, world-renowned theologian, wrote a whole series of commentaries. And I turn to Romans 5.20. And he says, to adequately explain Romans 5.20, first we're gonna have to go back to Philippians 2, and it's the exact passage we preached last week. And we're gonna have to ask these questions. Why did Adam grasp for equality? I mean, he verbatim for a page writes my sermon from last week. I didn't read any of this when we planned this sermon series. I didn't know any of this. I was that ignorant. We just prayed and we talked and we wrote it down. And so God, in just a moment of real vulnerability, shows me, you think you did this? And I read my sermon in the notes of one of the most noted theologians in the world. And I just weep. I mean, there's just tears falling on my paper. Here's my point. God does not call you to do things you're already equipped for or you're adequate for because he doesn't get glory in that. Your life is not one that is risk-free. Our goal is not to arrive at death safely. It is to take giant risks of obedience where God calls you into spaces where you're certain you're not adequate so that the only way that the success of that scenario can be explained is by the miraculous, powerful work of God. That is the Christian life. One of dependence that feels unsettling, that at times feels horrible, that you're like, man, it's all gonna go wrong, and God's like, yes, we're in the perfect spot. That's the power of the gospel. Now, as we close, I want you to close your eyes for just a second. I just, want, I just want you to ask this of yourself. What is, what is the situation, the relationship, the thing in your life that God has been asking you to give over to him? 
and you keep trying to do it of your own power, your own ability, your own adequacy. And God's like, I want to do this. (laughs) And you won't get out of the way. And then secondly, for those of you, as you kind of think about that, that area of your life, the Christian life is not one of more rule following. It's one where you're being intentional about putting energy into growing with the Lord. We put that energy into loving the Lord. Where in your life have you not intentionally pressed into growth with him? Whether that's joining a small group, whether that's your reading plan, whether that's giving something up, whether I don't know what it is, because I'm telling you, it's different for all of us because God speaks to us individually, and I can't tell you what it is for you. Here's what I can tell you. I can tell you right now that he's doing work in your life, that he's calling you to love him more and to see him more clearly and to see yourself more clearly and to live a life that actually is going to feel incredibly risky and you'll never go back. It is the most addictive thing that you can ever be hooked on. It's called the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. So today, as we sing this song together, I want you to consider how God is leading and prompting you to give things up and to put your hands around things that pursue him more diligently. Our elders and our prayer team are gonna be up here to pray for you, to love on you, to talk to you, whatever you need. This altar is open. If you wanna come up and just pray and talk to God, you may do so. I'm gonna close us with this old hymn about how God is more. Have you on the Lord believed? Still there is more to follow. Of his grace have you received? Still there is more to follow. Oh, the grace the Father shows. Still there's more to follow. Freely his grace bestows. Still there's more to follow. More and more and more and more. Always more to follow. Oh, his matchless, boundless love. Still there's more to follow. If we will wrap our minds around God's grace, super abounding, read verse 21 of the same thing that we've been reading. Now the law came in to increase the trespass where death increased, grace abounded all the more. 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Please stand, we're gonna sing this song and we'll be up here to pray for you. We love you. Jesus' name.